0: Well, good morning. So glad that you're here. Uh, my name is Kurt, as Mike said, and I am really honored to be up here as we wrap up this uh, incredibly creatively titled series on the life of Moses called Moses. Uh, and, and, uh, but it has been, it's been really fun to just hear how these messages from this very central you know, character in the story of God uh, from thousands and thousands of years ago has really played into people's lives as we've been studying and digging into this together these last five weeks. And just to hear how people have taken risks and taken these messages and really put legs to them in their own stories. That people have been able to let go of things and put them uh, into the hands of God and really, you know, release them into the river of trust, as Nancy taught us in week two. You know, or they've learned how to uh, discover and and take steps towards a calling of their life to serve other people. Or that they've learned how to be patient as God, as he so often does, takes the long way around. And so if you were not able to be here the last couple weeks, I would highly encourage you to check out the rest of these uh, message series. They're all online at But uh, It's been really powerful. And, and as we wrap up the series today, we're going to look at how Moses' life finished, how it, how it wrapped up, how he finished well with God. And I got to warn you at the front end, though, it might not be the way you might expect if you're unfamiliar with the story, we're going to look at it together this morning, and, and it might not end the way we would expect, the way we would hope. And we really don't like things not going the way we expect. Right, you just got to share something you know, with a, your new best friend, as Mike said. Uh, hopefully you met somebody and got to explain what was something that let you down. You had high expectations, and it, and it didn't fulfill them, and you maybe ended up disappointed. We, we hate being disappointed. We hate being let down. We hate our expectations not being met. I, my wife and I are from Southern California. And when we moved here, uh, people were trying to convince us of something that was true that was not. See, in Southern California, we have this incredible fast food restaurant called In-N-Out Burger. Uh, you might have been familiar. Uh, I have a friend that he exclusively takes business trips only to places that have an In-N-Out Burger. Um, which is getting more and more places, but not quite yet here in Chicago. But you know, people move here, and people be like, oh, you gotta go to this place, you gotta go to this place. It's just like In-N-Out. And they were always wrong, uh, and I was consistently disappointed. And, and some of the places were good, and I've gone back, and others were not. Um, but but it, was, it was always this thing that's like never quite there. Whenever I go home now, it's like the first stop home, and the last stop before the airport before I come back is In-N-Out Burger. And, and so for me, you know, that was always a disappointment. And for you, as you shared, maybe, maybe there's a disappointment in your life that's uh, perhaps a little bit more spiritual than a cheeseburger. Um, <laughs> but for me, that's a really important deal. Uh, but we have these moments where, where we're let down. And, and it's, it's one thing when it's a movie or, or a song on the radio uh, or a restaurant. You know, maybe you ask for a refund. But when it's a, a person that lets you down, it's, it's a little bit more intense, right? It's a little bit different. You feel it differently if it's a, a boss a or a spouse. Or if you're a kid and your parent tells you you they're disappointed in you, it's like, oh, that's the worst. Just be mad at me. Disappointment's the worst. But what do you do when God has disappointed you? What do you do when God has disappointed you? And and that's the lively topic that we're going to talk about this morning. Um, (laughs) But many of us have never really thought about that. We've never thought about that. We felt it, but we've never thought, what do we actually do with that? What do we actually do with those feelings? Where does that lead us? And, and these are the kind of the spaces in people's life that often become turning points, uh, potentially turning points away from God, where they, where they cash in their faith, where the, the childhood answers of faith no longer work for the adult situation they find themselves in that's difficult. Uh, where, where perhaps they, they say, I don't know what to do, so I'm just gonna mask it with more happier thoughts or feelings, or I'm gonna try to push them down and pretend that they're not really there. But we often don't have tools to know what to actually do with those feelings. And I think it's interesting though, and we're going to see this in the life of Moses, that the heroes that we read about in the scriptures seemed incredibly comfortable, incredibly comfortable bringing their disappointments, lock, stock, and barrel to God, like full force. And yet it can often seem very foreign to you and I on how to do that. There's something I think we can learn from Moses' story about disappointment with God, which is an interesting place for his life to end. If you're not familiar with the story, there's this theme that shows up perhaps, even if you probably, you know, not missed you've missed these last couple of weeks, you probably maybe have heard this theme before, uh, maybe in a cartoon, uh, perhaps you get this from Moses' life, but there's this theme that emerges, a central theme in, this, in the story of Moses of promised land promised land, that it's this idea that emanates from the souls of the people that he's leading that's this far-off destination, but it's always the present direction they're heading, and they're always focused on it, and it's this place that represents these dreams, these hopes of words like freedom and community and home, these words that mean something deeply to people, that mean something to us, And, and, and it's this incredible place that Moses is leading them to. And these desires, they come from a deep place. They're not just in our head, they're not just in our heart, or not some you know, strategic plan of plotting out a map, but these were things that happened, like I said, in the souls of hundreds of people for thousands of years waiting for promised land, that soul place, that deep place in all of us where our spirit and God's spirit mingle. That's where this idea of home, of promised land comes from. And as we pick up the story in Moses' life this this morning, we're we're, we're near, like I said, the end of his life where God actually takes him. They're on the precipice of entering the promised land, and God takes him, as we're going to see in a minute, up to the top of this mountain to look into this incredible place. And then God says, even though, Moses, you've led these people all the way to here, you will not be the one that takes them in. Even though you're the one that's gotten them to to the doorway, you will not cross the finish line, and all of the oxygen seems to go out of the story. And you've probably felt that way. I know I have. Where the thing that you thought was sure suddenly seems impossible. The thing that, that you thought was, you know, the predictable next step now doesn't seem to have any sort of, you know, picture of reality for you. It seems like it's not going to happen. And, and we come back to these places where, you know, the test comes back and the doctor says the disease has returned. You don't know what to do. Or she says that She's leaving or your boss tells you the company is going a different direction and the position that you worked hard for for 10 years is now no longer necessary. What do you do when your pictured promised land isn't for you? What do you do when God has disappointed you? These are big feelings. So we're going to look at the story of Moses, and and my hope and prayer as as we are in this together is that you leave today with a, a handle on how to process those feelings because H- it's inevitable you're going to get there. You're inevitably going to come up to a situation where you have to figure out, what do I do with these feelings? And, and for most of us, we don't know what to do. And so hopefully, if we look at the life of Moses, uh, we, can, we can get some in- insight about how Moses dealt with that and finished well with God in spite of his disappointment. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to the last chapter of Deuteronomy. Yep, this is the part of the Bible that people may have warned you about. Um, Deuteronomy chapter 34. In uh, these gray Bibles, if you don't have a Bible with you, you can grab one of these. And it'll also be up on the screen. But in the gray Bibles, it's on page 146. And we say this all the time, uh, that if you don't have a Bible that you can read and understand, we would love and invite you to steal a Bible from church today. Uh, because we believe that this book has tools for life and how you can connect with God, and so it's really, really important you have one. So uh, we're going to pick this up in chapter 34, verses 1 through 5, and then skip down to the last two verses at the end. But again, it says they've been wandering through the desert, as Pastor Jeannie led us through last week. I mean, they've been waiting for this moment. And the entire book of Deuteronomy is Moses' kind of last words to his people, and this is the very, very last, literal last chapter of his life, and it says this. Then Moses climbed Mount Nebo... From the, plain, from the plains of Moab to the top of Pisgah, across Jericho, and there the Lord showed him the whole land, from Gilead to Dan, all of Netaphali, all these lots of words that mean nothing to us right now because you're not Indiana Jones, uh, but the territory of Ephraim and Manasseh and all the land of Judah as far as the Mediterranean Sea, the, uh, the Negev and the whole region of the valley of Jericho, the city of Palms as far as Zoar. So again, means nothing to us, but this is a monster area of land in, in what is now Jordan and Israel. And then the, you know, the next verse kind of changes a little bit the tone. It says, and the Lord said to him, this is the land that I've promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I said, I will give it to your descendants. And he's, now he's talking to Moses. And I have let you see it with your eyes, but you will not cross over into it. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in Moab, and the Lord has said, as the Lord has said. And it goes on and it says, since then no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all these signs and wonders that the Lord had sent him to do in Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his officials and to the whole land. No one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all of Israel. And, And I... When I was a kid, I even remember reading this story, or hearing about it in Sunday school, and feeling like these were two very different storylines happening at the same time. And if you were Moses, just put yourself in his sandals for a second. <laughs> and, and, and you, for years of your life, led these people that bothered you, constantly, it seemed like, through the desert. You, you performed miracles for them, provided for them, protected them, and you get to the finish line, and God says, that's far enough. How would you feel? To, to me, it always seemed, even as a child, like, like it didn't make sense that God would keep Moses from this thing he had been hoping for for his whole life, working towards, so faithfully serving God towards his whole life, just for a small mistake earlier in, in his story. But as I get older and I I read this passage as I'm studying for this message, there's even something, if I can be honest, more distasteful about God that rises to the surface for me. That God would actually show him the beauty of this land and then say, now that you've seen it, now you don't get it. To dangle the carrot in front of a story, a person that we've studied like Moses. And yet as we read the book of Deuteronomy, we realize that there's not a time in Moses' life where he is full of like entitlement or like I cannot believe that you do this. And it's so seemingly odd because of things we've learned about Moses that he did not seem to have a problem bringing his frustration to God. Moses was actually a professional arguer with God, we learn in his story. But not this time. Why is that? Is it because Moses was this incredible leader and wholly devoted to God at a level that's unattainable to any of us in this room? I don't think so. I don't think so. Because for us, remember, we we get to read the story of Moses with the luxury of history. We we, we know the story. Pharaoh lets the people go every time. We get to the Red Sea and it separates every time. But Moses lived his life day by day just like you and I do. Moses actually had a lot of excuses as to why he could have more doubt than trust in God, why he could have his life filled with more fear than faith. Remember, the context of Moses' life is that he he was born into a massive genocide by the empire that was enslaving his entire country. Imagine being the only man in your generation where, where the better choice for your parents was to put you in a basket and let you go into the river and hope that the crocodiles... Don't eat you. That was the better option. And then you show up, and your basket kind of floats down and shows up on the porch of the daughter of the person who's trying to kill you. They didn't have counselors back then. Moses could have used one. All right, this is an intense scenario, and, and all of his peers are dead. And so every time someone sees you, every mother that sees you doesn't celebrate that God saved you, she wonders and hurts that her son is dead. Every father that sees you has this overwhelming question in his soul of why Moses and not my boy. See, Moses became the metaphor for his people of God's inactivity. Moses became the metaphor that God wasn't there when his people needed him the most. And that's what Moses grew up with. And so I don't think Moses had this incredible faith necessarily. I don't think Moses was superhuman, but I do think that Moses had experienced God enough that when he got to the end of his life, he had this deep sense of peace because of the authentic friendship, and as we're going to see in a minute, the face to face relationship that he had with God. So he knew that God would sustain him even through Moses' rash decisions mistakes, and even sin, and he trusted that God was doing something in every single space of his life. You see, Moses needed to lead the Israelites. He needed to lead the people to a place, to the promised land, so they would believe the promises of God, but Moses believed the promise because he knew the promise maker. Moses believed the promise because he knew the promise maker, and so that's why in verses 10 and 12, it kind of seems to jump up 200,000 feet, and we get God's perspective on Moses that since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all these signs and wonders. And the Lord sent him to Egypt, to Pharaoh, and to his officials, and to the whole land. And I love that phrase, whom the Lord knew face to face. Whom the Lord knew face to face. This commentary on the relationship between God and Moses was not of one of static religion, but of deep personal intimacy, personal connection, personal relationship. So the Israelites would hear from Moses that God said to do something, and they would just do it. It was transactional. But Moses knew God, and God knew Moses. Moses was invited into this, and while it brought special insight, it also required superior vulnerability there were there were things that Moses could bring to God that seemed easier that he ca- but he chose to be fully honest in the celebration but also in the crippling moments where he didn't know what to do Moses had to be honest with God about his delight and also his disappointment see Moses knew that you can't live face to face with God while hiding behind your disappointments that you and I As well, cannot live face to face with God while hiding behind our disappointments. And I know in a room this size that perhaps that place of disappointment with God is exactly where you sit this morning. Or perhaps it's the thing that's kept you from coming to a place like this for a long time. Where the dream life that you had pictured for a long time perhaps at one point was so vivid and so clear and now it seems like a nightmare. The circumstances in our life can easily trigger that sense of disappointment with God. And and it's deeper than just disappointment with a restaurant or a movie or a song. It's, It's in our soul. It's in our soul saying, God, I thought I would be somewhere else by now. I thought I would be further along in my career. I thought I would have a partner. I thought that thing I would be searching for would be found, I thought that loved one would have been healed. I thought I'd have a child by now. And I believe that it's in the midst of those very real and painful disappointments that God extends to you and to I the invitation to live with him face to face. This was a This is where I was about a year ago. And um, it was a place where everything in my life seemed to be falling apart and I could do nothing to stop it. Where um, the dream that my wife and I had, um, starting a family, that was already once delayed uh, because we decided to pack everything up and move to Chicago uh, to help start a church. And so that was our choice. Was now seemingly indefinitely set aside with uh, unsuccessful fertility treatments and a miscarriage. And at first I would uh, sugarcoat how I was really doing because I thought that people didn't want to hear about it. And at some level I believed that God couldn't handle it if I'm really honest. But God wanted to hear my praise, and God wanted to hear, oh, you're so amazing. You're God. They didn't want to handle my frustration and my anger and my confusion. And so I would repeat the phrases that I had learned growing up in church of, his ways are hard than my ways. Now I'm going to grow through this, which is true. I was angry when I said it. But as the repeated unsuccessful attempts mounted, the internal pressure of my disappointment began to reach a breaking point. And I found myself dangerously close to throwing in the towel in my belief that God was even present. I believed God existed, but I just didn't know if he cared. And, and I knew that if I held those disappointments in my soul, they would rot me from the inside. That they had to have a release and I didn't know how. And and you might know what that feels like. And you might not know how. See, the Bible refers to our soul as a well or a spring of life. It's a living thing. And I'll never forget when my wife said, You know, the only way to dig a well deeper is to empty it out first. And that encouraging statement (laughs) was exactly what it felt like. And through this season and and truly through many hours in my counselor's office, um, I was able to find the courage to process that disappointment with God in a way that I had probably resisted for many years. Many years. It was, it was so frustrating. I, mean, we, I, had, I had to get all these thoughts out of my head of, God, we had, we're the ones that have done everything right. And we, we were faithful to each other. We, we started a church. Remember us? We're pastors. We, we put it all on the table for you. And now we don't get a baby. And I was scared to say those things out loud. And, um, and it started, like I said, it started to rot inside me and it made me jaded and jealous and judgmental. And I saw that because I wasn't willing to live face to face with God, I was hiding behind my disappointments, that my soul was decaying. My soul was decaying. I was not on the path to finishing well with God. And at the same time, we were um, reading this book as a staff team called Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership by Ruth Haley Barton. And it's an incredible book where she walks through the life of Moses and she gets to this part of his story. And, And she was the first author I'd ever read that shared the sentiment that I had seemed to feel even from an early age of this just seems unfair, God. It just seems like you're mean. And she has this chapter about reenvisioning the promised land. And she writes that how the, Moses seemed to rest in the peace of God even in his final disappointing moment because it was based on the foundation of an honest, authentic, face-to-face friendship with God that he had had for the majority of his life. That he could fully accept God because he knew he was fully accepted by God. And we see this through his story. He's honest with God about his fear about going before Pharaoh. When he's standing at the edge and he feels the tide on his feet and there's millions of people behind him and miles of water in front of him and there seems no way out, he says, God, what have you done? Where are you? Will you provide a way? He even seems to in all honesty, curse God when he has the desert heat of the Middle East and the heat of the millions of people looking to him for leadership coming at him. And he's like, just kill me now. He had that kind of relationship with God. The kind of relationship that I think all of us at some level crave. So he wasn't afraid to go to God when it felt like God was holding out on him. And I think that face-to-face friendship that Moses shared with God, I think God desires to share that with you and with me. I think that's one of God's actual deepest desires is face-to-face relationship with you. But we can't hide behind our disappointments if we want that to happen. And so one of the most effective uh, tools, and it was difficult, it was a difficult practice that I was encouraged to do, but. I had never heard this before, uh, but it really helped me through these last two years is to read Psalm 13 where David, another hero of the Bible that that is described as a man after God's own heart seems to lay into God. Just let him have it. It's not on the screen. I want you to do me a favor. Would you close your eyes and would you listen to this as I read it? And would you tell me if this doesn't resonate perhaps with what you felt before how long Lord will you forget me forever how long will you hide your face from me how long must I wrestle with these thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart how long Lord will my enemy triumph over me look at me look at me and answer Give light to my eyes or just kill me now and my enemy will say I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. So I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me. When I first read this Passage, I thought that David was a little bit bipolar <laughs> because it felt like, on one side, he's just like, What is happening, God? and then seemingly it shifts to a praise song you'd hear in church. And I never understood it until I was in it and I realized that the only reason David could say the last few lines was because he had been honest in the first. The only reason he could say, God, I I trust your unfailing love. The only reason David knew how deep God's love was for him is because he knew what it was like for it to feel like God was pulling him under. And for you and for me, if we're gonna live with God, if we're gonna finish well, if the things that disappoint us or hang us up aren't going to keep us from a friendship with God, then we can't hide behind our disappointments. We have to be honest with God. And so what I would do with this passage is I would read through it once just to give me courage. Sometimes you just got to know you're not the first one that's feeling these things. And then I would read through it a second time and replace David's frustration of being hunted down of having these enemies. And I would put mine in. And the reading, the second time took a lot longer. (laughs) It went a little slower. The page was a little wetter at the end of it. But what if you and I can look at these examples and be that honest with God? Because it's easy to pass up disappointments when it's, you know, your team didn't win in game seven. Luckily, we don't have to worry about that. (laughs) Go Hawks. But when it's a deep disappointment with God, it can derail you. Maybe it has. And so no matter where you find yourself this morning, just know that the invitation from God to you is to come back face to face. I love that even David has that phrase, Lord, look at me. Look at me. Show me your eyes. Because when you're face to face with someone, there's nowhere to hide and the thing is, you and I are already actually good at voicing our disappointments. When it's your boss and they make a decision that disappoints you, you may not talk to them about it, but you'll talk to your coworkers. When you, when you don't like a song on the radio and your friend loves it, you're like, really? When when you're disappointed in your... well, this will be easier. When your spouse is disappointed in you, <laughs> you tend to hear about it. And so how, however misaligned those realities are, we actually already know what to do with our disappointments because we know if we keep them in, they destroy our soul. And so we know they have to come out somehow. And so my encouragement to you, because this was my story, is don't wait until you have to do it perfectly. God's okay. God's okay. And if you just let him out, he can handle them. He's not afraid of my disappointment. He's not afraid of yours. And the reason I know that's true is because I look at Jesus. And Jesus was not afraid to let God have it. So it's don't, I don't want to do this. The whole crucifixion thing, I've seen it. It doesn't look fun. It looks painful. It looks isolating. I don't want this and God didn't save him from it. God led him to it, and he went through it, and through the process, he saved you and he saved me. And so I know the fear, I know the fear I had, that if I come to God with this, I gotta give it up and not care anymore. You don't. Jesus didn't, David didn't, Moses didn't. They don't give it up, they just give it to. They don't give it up, they just give it to. God. So what if you and I, this week, can be that honest with God? What if we can trust that the God who didn't save his own son but allowed him to be betrayed, experienced loneliness, loss, pain, and disappointment at the cross so that we could have relationship with him, so that we, you and I could live face to face with God? That he was not immune from our pain but he's familiar with it, and so he's not afraid of ours. What if we can live like Moses and not avoid that gut level honesty with God, and trust that even when the road to your pictured promised land was dark or is unclear, that you and I can trust the promise maker. We can trust the promise maker. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I love that as a church we hold our hands open to you. And no matter where we're at, God, on our journey, maybe this idea of of you not giving us what we want or what we expect is the reason that we've created distance from you. I know that's true in my life. But God, you invite us to live open-handedly. You invite us to show up wherever we are, however we are, and live in relationship with you face-to-face. God, that, that is a powerful and soul-transforming reality. So God, thank you that in your word you give us models of people that didn't have it all together, that didn't get what they wanted, that didn't just always say positive things. Because, God, that's why we can trust you. That's why we can relate. So, God, I pray this week, in the midst of the very real, potentially painful things that any of us might be in, that we can keep our eyes on you promise maker, promise keeper, know we would live life with you face to face, not hiding, not avoiding, but open and honest. It's in your name we pray, amen.